Welcome to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. If you like what you hear, I'd love you to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Write a review, and if you're so inclined, tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. Be sure to visit our website, talkingbeats.com, where you can find much more information about the guests, support the show in various ways, sign up for the newsletter, and be in touch directly with me. As always, the dialogue continues on social media at Talking Beats Podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me. Now, to the conversation. On today's program, news personality and writer John Avlon. He's senior political analyst at CNN, appearing on New Day every morning. Previously, he was editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast from 2013 to 2018. He's the author of the books, Independent Nation, How Centrists Can Change American Politics, Wingnuts, How the Lunatic Fringe is Hijacking America, and Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. He's out now with a new book on Abraham Lincoln called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, in which he focuses on the extraordinary character of the great man who used empathy, humor, logic, and scripture to heal deep divides. As Avalon writes about America, quote, the only nation founded on an idea rather than a tribal identity, our patriotism is more than mere nationalism and our success is not for ourselves alone. As many know and feel, America in 2022 is the most divided it has been in generations. What are the lessons we can take from Abraham Lincoln? What did he know that we don't? And how can we get to a more harmonious place so future generations can live and prosper in peace? Well, with new book in hand, I'm hoping my guest can help shed light on this most elusive subject. John Avlon, welcome. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Why a book on Lincoln? There's so many thousands of books on Lincoln. The obvious question is, what what does another one do? Why Lincoln for you? It's a great and fair question. As I, I, I address this head on in the introduction, you know, there have been over 16,000 books written about Lincoln. So, you know, you'd think this would be purely a fool's errand. Um, other than the fact, you know, that there's a, a gravitational pull towards Lincoln for many of us. And, and my general rule for writing a book is you want to uh, write the book you'd like to read, which presupposes it hasn't been written yet. Um, and when I had this idea, I, I went and I, I spoke to a number of Lincoln scholars um, and, and, uh, and, and I, I raised this idea with them um, about Lincoln, the peacemaker, Lincoln's vision for winning the peace after winning the war. And uh, I'll never forget, I was standing in the Abraham Lincoln bookstore in Chicago, Illinois, talking to the owner, Daniel Weinberg. And I, I was asking him again, I said, now, has anybody done this? You know, because I don't want to do something that's been done. And I, if you think I'm stretching, you know, wave me off it. And he thought for a second, he looked around the walls, but literally it's an entire bookstore about Abraham Lincoln. And he said, you know, I'll be darned. I don't think anyone's done that before. And the reason is, um, is that, you know, Lincoln dies five days after the surrender at Appomattox. You know, he never has a chance to implement his vision of winning the peace. But as I explain in the book, um, and I, I detail in the book, uh, focusing primarily on the last six weeks of his life from the second inaugural through his last speech, uh, which is a practical meditation upon uh, reconstruction to his comments to generals aboard the River Queen that directly lead to the generous terms of surrender at Appomattox. Lincoln 
had a fairly well-developed idea of how he wanted to win the peace after winning the war. His prescription was unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. He knew that you needed to combine strength with mercy. Uh, and, and, and the reason this was a revolutionary idea is that there had never been a civil war on this scale before. And America, we forget, was the world's sole democracy at the time. And so what Lincoln instinctively understood was you couldn't simply salt the fields of a conquered country uh, like, like Rome did to Carthage. You had to find a way to coax people back into living together again. And what Lincoln understood was if you don't win the peace, you don't really win the war. You know, there's so many quotes from people we all admire uh, about Lincoln in this book. Um, but you, you write early on, you, you spend a lot of time outlining his character, speaking about the kind of person he was, because I think it's so important to look at that in addition to all the, the facts, but sort of get this emotional view of this person who was incredibly emotional. Uh, there's a lot of people speak about uh, the childlike simplicity he brought to uh, sort of interactions. There are these stray cats you talk about, and people were absolutely struck uh, that he took such a liking to this. But little things like that uh, contribute to this emotional picture. And, and you're right, you're right in the beginning. He was the opposite of a demagogue, those leaders who reflexively divide the world into us against them. His motto was fairness to all. And his most cited biblical verse in conversation, and he did cite a lot of biblical verses in conversation, as you inform us, was let us judge not lest we be judged. Even in heated political debates, he said, I do not question the patriotism or assail the motives of any man. That's a quote. It's amazing to read these quotes and uh, the modern aspect of them, the timelessness, the way they apply to our time right now in 2022, it's really striking to me. It, it is striking. And, you know, someone once said the best way to serve an age is to betray it. And in that spirit, um, Lincoln's generosity of spirit, his capacity for empathy uh, and, and honesty and humor and humility at the height of civil war was itself a rebellious act, because obviously all the gravitational pull is towards meeting hate with hate. It's a civil war, for God's sakes. But he doesn't do that. And, and, and that, to me, I think, is why uh, his leadership retains the force of, of revelation. He invents basically a new style of leadership focused on reconciliation that goes on to inspire Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, and, and leaders uh, from multiple generations as everybody tries to achieve a just and a lasting peace. But part of the point of the book for me in this sort of portrait of a peacemaker, this close focus on the last six weeks of his life, um, is, is how much Lincoln's leadership uh, is ultimately rooted in core aspects of his personality. I think we ignore sometimes um, that personality affects principles and are expressed in politics and policies. Uh, and, and, and that's why character is the indispensable quality for any president or any leader. It flows from a person's personality and character. And we got lucky, even though Lincoln was on paper incredibly ill-prepared to be president during a civil war. This is a guy who'd had no executive positions, a one-term congressman from a new political party, never served in the military. Um, he was derided by his contemporaries. He was mocked for, you know, and, and for telling too many stories and relying, telling too many jokes. Um, but he grew in office and, and, and he built upon the foundation of his character. How was Lincoln able to be so progressive in a way without 
going too far. How was he able to do this? It was the, the, the most difficult of all dances is the one he did. Uh, what was it about him? Was it his ideas, his personality? Was it just the words he chose to use to express himself that swayed so many people? Clearly, he had an incredible gift. You talk a lot about how he would sit there. Uh, people would watch him writing his own speeches, and he'd sit uh, his his very long legs kind of coiled up on an ottoman in front of him, and, and he'd be writing, and then uh, the beginning would always be maybe a little uh, stilted or a little stiff, but a few minutes in or a minute in, he'd really get going, and it was as if something took him over. Was that a huge part of it, or was it the ideas themselves? Well, I, I, I think both. Um, I mean, from an idea standpoint, I mean, he he's not a formally educated man, but he draws deeply on Shakespeare and the Bible and Aesop's fables. He he speaks in parables. He tells stories. He understands that that's actually the most effective way to communicate. Um, it's it's not through highfalutin, uh, you know, abstract theories. Um, but I, I think that you know, you speak about how his his uh, contemporaries speak about how his his he loosened up in the course of a speech. He began stiff and awkward. Um, it's particularly true early on. And and one of the fascinating things to see a really stunning number of his contemporaries when they meet him right home and describe him as ugly, like the ugliest man they've ever met. And yet <laughs> when he starts speaking, all account how his his face lights up, and 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 there becomes a, a beauty. Uh, that I think is attributable to the man's soul that is expressed in his eyes and, 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 and is itself transforming and, 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 and transfixing. Um, and I think it is rooted in just a fundamental decency. One of the really heartening things about Lincoln and after, you know, you spend four years writing a book, you spend four years with a person and Lincoln never disappoints. He is never petty. He's not perfect, but he's never petty. He never allows politics or religion uh, to excuse immoral behavior. He doesn't play office politics. He is a he is a good and decent man. And one of the great things, he reminds us that kindness can be consistent with effective leadership. Uh, and that's a lesson we can't learn too much. You know, speaking about kindness, I, I want you to talk about him going to the front lines on this two-week trip that he took. He goes to the front lines uh, and he he meets with liberated slaves. He meets with soldiers on both sides, Confederate and Union he offers comfort to soldiers on both sides. Uh, and it's, it's just striking scene because you talk, obviously he was an extremely tall and a, a striking physical presence uh, and an appearance which cannot be confused with anyone else in the world. And, and here he is uh, talking with Confederate troops and offering comfort. It's amazing to bring us there. What was this all about? What was he doing and how did he do it so sincerely? Well, the stories themselves, I mean, have a cinematic quality. And, and one you describe is, is how I begin the book, which is Lincoln's walk into Richmond. Um, the city is still burning. It's days after the Confederate capital has fallen. Um, it's still not fully secured. Um, he arrives on a longboat. There's no grand military procession. He's not a triumphal leader entering a conquered capital. He's holding his son Tad's hand on the boy's 12th birthday. And he meets with the people and, 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 as you say, liberated slaves, and he treats them with dignity. One, one reporter at the time sees a, uh, an elderly black man bow to the president, and the president bows in return. And that is a revolutionary gesture. He says it destroyed centuries of caste and custom. Um, 
one of my favorite stories in the trip to, to City Point, and it's a, it's a dramatic period in his life that sometimes gets short shrift in his biographies, not just the trip to Lincoln, but his trip to City Point, which was the Union headquarters at the end of the war, which I visited um, in, in, in researching the book. Um, he uh, There's a great moment where he, he's touring uh, the Depot Field Hospital. It's the largest hospital in the country at the time. It's full of of, of wounded Union soldiers, and he goes and he's he's introducing himself to all of them and wanting to hear how they are. And he gets very emotional about the suffering he's seeing. And then as he's gone and shaking all those hands, he, he sees a, a another tent a little bit in the distance. And he says, "What's that over there?" And the doctor who's touring around, his proud man, says, "Oh, well, that's those are that's where we're keeping the the the, the wounded rebels. You don't need to go there." And Lincoln says, "That's exactly where I do need to go." And he walks over and he performs the, the same, offers the same dignity and care and consolation to the wounded Confederate soldiers. And, and you can see they are stunned um, by this magnanimous gesture. And it causes some of them, including a, a Confederate general and other scene, to break down and cry because they realize in some level they've been fighting for a lie. You know, they've been convinced Abraham Lincoln was widely despised during his time and they'd been convinced he was some kind of demon. And instead they saw a kind man. And uh, it was deeply disarming. How did people view his ideas at the time? Of course, the country was so divided, and we speak of divided country today, uh, but he, he moved gradually, as you mm. outline in the book. He, he didn't come up with hugely startling proclamations out of the blue. He, he prepared people, he prepared himself he himself evolved, his thoughts evolved. How did this all go in terms of making policy, in terms of outlining what he really wanted for the country? It was deep down in him somewhere. It, it came out a little bit at a time, though, yeah? It, it did. And, and you asked about this earlier, what makes him such an, an effective force for progress? Um, and it's precisely that he was not a radical and he was not a reactionary. He was a reconciler. He was a reformer. He, his gradualism had a grandeur to it because he was constantly thinking about how he could move the nation forward, but not so fast that he would court backlash. And this is a critical issue, even in our politics today. I think especially in our politics today. You know, the abolitionists were frustrated with Lincoln a lot of the time, even though he'd basically been a single issue candidate. Um, as a matter of policy, he initially just wanted to stop slavery's spread, its expansion. He didn't think the president had the ability to end slavery. Um, only the war gave him that power. And then the constitutional amendment, the 13th amendment, which is one of the things he did in the last months of his life. Um, Frederick Douglass, uh, his friend, but, but somebody who was, was, his job was to be an activist, said that, you know, seen from the abolitionist ground, Lincoln uh, was tardy, cold, and indifferent, he said. But seen from the perspective of an American statement, statesman, was bound to consult the sentiments of his countrymen. Um, he was swift, zealous, and radical. And, and there you catch it. I mean, he, Frederick Douglass gets it. Um, he, he needs to think about how to move the nation forward, but not so fast as to court a backlash that would actually be counterproductive to lasting progress. And that's why I call him a soulful centrist. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful description. Indeed, you write uh, quoting Frederick Douglass, uh, the embodiment of human charity, whose heart, though strong, was as tender as the heart of childhood, who always tempered justice with mercy, a word that comes up a lot in this book and, and a word that comes up a lot 
with Abraham Lincoln uh, in general, um, with mercy so sought to supplant the sword with the counsel of reason to suppress passion by kindness and moderation. It's an amazing quote uh, from Frederick Douglass. Uh, and indeed, this, this malice and charity with malice toward none, uh, with charity for all, uh, you, you spend quite a bit of time talking about this because, well, obviously it's a very famous line. It has become one of the most famous lines uh, that Lincoln ever said. Um, but uh, you, you talk about the, the words malice and, and the word charity. It's interesting uh, what you, you say about charity. Explain what maybe he meant by the word charity there uh, and, and how this malice toward non-charity for all uh, embodies the man himself. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the, the last sentence, the last paragraph also of his second inaugural address. And I say it's it's the best sentence in American democracy, and I think it is. And it begins with malice toward none, with charity for all. Um, and it, it is a paragraph that lays out his vision for national reconciliation and embodies what I call New Testament leadership. Because the rest of the second inaugural is actually a very Old Testament speech. I mean, it's about the nation's suffering. Uh, for the sin of slavery, both the North and the South. He's very careful. He, he doesn't pit the North against the South, even though we're in the midst of a civil war. He talks about we and us and all. And he sees the North as being partly responsible for the sin of slavery because they help perpetuate it by providing markets for cotton and rice. Um, but it, it, in that last paragraph, I think the essential vision of a magnanimous peace is crystallized the path to a just and a lasting peace. And, and you asked about the, the meanings of, of the word. Um, malice means, you know, evil intent. Uh, and, and it's the opposite of how Lincoln operates. It's the opposite of kindness. Um, charity, as I say, you know, is a word that, you know, to some folks has a, a sort of whiff of condescension today. But if you actually go back to its, its roots, it means sort of brotherly love and, 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 and you know, sort of agape, this Greek vision of love, but love, love between fellow human beings. Um, and, and that's what he was all about. I mean, his philosophy, I call it the politics, the golden rule. Um, it's, it's something that we don't see in our politics almost at all today, but it's a, a simple revolutionary idea also said by Jesus in Sermon on the Mount, uh, treat other people like you'd like to be treated. And it's a concept that is, exists in almost every faith tradition. Um, it's easier said than done particularly in, 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 in politics, particularly in, in deeply divided, distrustful times, of which the Civil War is the most extreme example. But he really did embody that. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that made his leadership so revolutionary. And it's why after he died, he became so lionized. Um, and, and, and not beyond reason. Um, I, you know, I think it's much more interesting to remember him uh, as, as his contemporaries saw him, but there was something about the example he set that inspired those people for the rest of their lives. Talk about his relationship with religion. Uh, it, it's something that comes up often throughout the book. He quotes, as we've said, Scripture a lot. He refers to the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament a lot. He clearly uh, was very worldly and had a, a, a big view, a broad view of religion. Uh, and he was beloved by people from all religions. In fact, uh, for the first time, maybe ever, when he was killed, uh, synagogues were praying. They were saying Kaddish for him uh, all over the country, which is very moving, uh, of course, to think about. Uh, what was his relationship 
with religion? It, it, it's interesting because it's not, um, you know, there, there are sometimes attempts to recast presidents into pious, pious people that they were not in life. I mean, he was a sort of youthful free thinker and skeptic, but he became more religious, um, especially during his presidency, the weight of responsibilities of the office, and also especially in reaction uh, to the grief of, of his son Willie's death, who died in the White House in the terrible winter and spring of 1862. And there were times where he would be seen reading the book of Job for comfort, <laughs> which was, I think you can say, because the idea that there was, no matter how much suffering occurred, there was still a plan. It may not be fair, it may not be just, but it was still within God's plan. But um, he, he was not a member of any, he was not an orthodox believer, he was not a member of any particular denomination, but clearly as he got older uh, and, and felt the responsibilities of the presidency, um, faith with a source of comfort, uh, probably second only to how much he relied on humor and humorists uh, as a form of self-medication. Um, but the second inaugural uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a deeply religious speech. I mean, it, it, it fuses um, democracy, the sort of vision of a cosmic democracy uh, in, in, in with a, a, a view of religion um, and it casts the nation as a, as a redeemer nation. Um, you know, that, 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 that a lot of the, you know, in some ways Lincoln is the Jesus of our politics. And, uh, you know, it's not just that he died on, you know, was shot on Good Friday, but a lot of his contemporaries in the immediate aftermath of his death, casting him as a martyr, reached for those same parallels. But um, a lot of his principles and what he exhibited, um, you know, you meet hate with love. You defeat hate with love, not with more hate. Um, that is an incredibly challenging concept, just as, you know, treating other people as he's like to be treated is, is, is superficially simple. Um, it's incredibly challenging. Um, but, but he did, to a large extent, uh, live up to those incredibly high standards. And that's what I think gives him this transcendent um, reputation. What did you learn that surprised you most about Lincoln, about this process, as you obviously did a lot of reading, a lot of research leading up to the writing of this book? Uh, and there's so many myths around Lincoln, many of which seem to be completely based in fact, actually, which is 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 very interesting. Um, these firsthand accounts sort of confirm this mythological uh, status uh, that we have of him today. But what either surprised you or did you learn or what was sort of crystallized as you were writing this, particularly in his approach to, yes, finding the peace, finding reconciliation, insisting on these rather uh, harsh terms. Uh, and then when Grant goes in uh, to get terms of surrender uh, from Robert E. Lee, uh, indeed, a very leniency comes out of it. And there's Lincoln presiding in the background over the whole thing. Yeah, he, he says consistently he wants a, a liberal and an honorable peace. Um, look, it is it is the balance between strength and magnanimity. It's unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. Um, you know, it, he he was tough-minded but tender-hearted, as I say. You know, he is a man of peace in a time of war. But and he knew how to balance uh, the, those those things because that wise balance is incredibly important. I'd, I'd say a, a number of things um, surprised me. Some of which I knew. For example, the fact that he 
presided over the writing of the first um, uh, rules, laws of war, <laughs> rules of war, the Lieber Code, which go on to influence the Geneva Convention and the Nuremberg trial. Um, how much he relied on humor at times that were his contemporaries thought was incredibly inappropriate. Um, you know, he he was a uh, he was a, a self-disciplined man in many respects who who felt emotions deeply, and he constantly toggles between sort of comedy and tragedy, and 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 um, and, and and melancholy and humor. But but it's 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 a determined effort on his part. He's, he carries around pamphlets and booklets of his favorite humorists, Artemis T. Ward and Patrolman V. Nasby. And he's reading them out loud at some incredibly momentous moments in American history where members of his cabinet are like saying, what the hell are you doing? You know, don't you understand the gravity of this situation? And there's one story in particular which really stuck with me, which I'd never seen before. Um, it's 1862, uh, and, and the Union has just suffered a bloody defeat. And Lincoln's friend, the Illinois Congressman Isaac N. Arnold, comes to the White House, finds the president in the second floor office. And he's reading a book uh, by one of his favorite humorists, Artemis Ward, out loud. And Arnold loses it and says to his friend, the president, what are you doing? How can you be laughing at a time like this when we've lost so many lives in such a pivotal battle? And Lincoln and Arnold's recounting in his memoir, throws the book down and with tears, tears streaming down his face says, don't you know that if I couldn't find relief from humor, I would, could not do anything. I would be overwhelmed with grief and I would be unable to lead. And that's when Arnold realizes that the, the, the humor is a form of self-medication. It's medicine for Lincoln. There's a practical benefit to it that he sees and he consciously applies just as he speaks in stories to communicate to people, even though he knows that he's derided for it. Humor as medicine. There's another thing that is medicine uh, to me and to you and to everybody, and that's music. Yeah. And, uh, you know, music um, certainly played a role in Lincoln's life, but I'm, I'm curious about music um, in your life as well. Uh, you know, everybody has a certain special relationship with music, and any kind of music is fair game. I'm curious, what is music to you? What do you, what do, you do with music on a daily basis? I love music. Like many writers, I am a uh, former and frustrated musician. Um, I'm not nearly as esteemed as, as you, but uh, you know, I, I, I had a number of bands growing up, and uh, you know, re recorded a few tracks here and there, and and uh, played a, a bunch of gigs, and had a lot of fun, and I loved it. And and I draw on it in ways that are not obvious today. One of which is as a writer uh, and a former speechwriter, but but I write for the ear. Um, probably disproportionately, the sound of words. And, and, and on some level, as a writer, you know, you're, you're, you're following the rhythm and the music of the sentence, and you'll know instinctively if that's off. But you're thinking auditorially without um, there being literal sound necessarily. Um, and, and that's, you know, not everybody writes that way, but I do. And, 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 uh, and, and that's part of the fun of it for me. I write to music obsessively. Um, I find it's difficult to write to music with lyrics in general. Um, it's distracting. Even the subliminal presence of lyrics takes a part of your mind off. But I listen to a lot of um, bluegrass and country and classical and jazz. Um, I actually did a playlist that I'm going to put up uh, probably on Apple or some you know, a couple places. Uh, 
because I'm always looking for playlists of music to listen to. Same and, here. Yeah. And, 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 and while I write in particular and, um, you know, this has everything from Goat Rodeo, which I love, which is sort of a, a, yo-yo, Ram, uh, a yo-yo Ma Chris Thiele sort of bluegrass project. It's a great song called Attaboy to uh, obviously Aaron Copeland, um, who's who's great. I mean, Appalachian Spring has a lot of themes, but then there's his Lincoln portrait, uh, which I actually write about in the book about how Aaron Copeland was marshalling the spirit of Lincoln to defeat the ideas of Hitler, he said. Um, which I performed for the first time I did it was John Goodman was narrating and that was uh, absolutely... Uh, oh, that's cool. Most memorable uh, experience because he brought a certain gravitas to it uh, that was uh, just extremely, extremely moving. And it is such a powerful piece. It is. I, I, um, I, you know, ironically, uh, you know, Lincoln is usually played by people with the baritone like Goodman or or Gregory Peck or others. Um, but Daniel Day-Lewis actually got the voice right. It was actually a higher pitched tenor, sort of a reedy Kentucky tenor. Um but, um, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, Max Richter, uh, I've I listened to a lot, those Yo-Yo Ma Edgar Meyer Appalachian albums. Um, you know, there's always a little bit of uh, film music uh, that I listen to, but, but increasingly I, I've, I've appreciated, you know, when you find your, the right recording for you, for some of the, the classical works that, that is, you know, transportive. Absolutely. Uh, Edgar Meyer is another favorite. Of, uh, Edgar is another favorite of mine, and I play with him uh, fairly often and uh, premiered, I think, a new uh, double bass concerto of his a few years ago. And uh, he's a, just a, a master, a master oh. musician. And I, I, I really love him. And he's a wonderful person, too. Well, well give him my, my regards and my thanks, because I, I really am a great admirer and a great appreciator. But I have I mean, a lot of this book was, if I were to go through the playlist, the number of tracks that he played on, I mean, um, I mean, my goodness. I mean, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at the playlist. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, of course, there's, there's always a little bit of Keith Jarrett, but these, um, these, these, uh, the Appalachian albums that he did with, with uh, Yo-Yo Ma and uh, that have, you know, uh, sliding down with him with Bella Fleck from the Heartland album. It's a great album. That's great stuff. Uh, yeah, it's just wonderful stuff. And I, so I, you know, I mean, I, I could, I could talk all day long, you know, about Johnny Cash or uh, the Felice Brothers, or you know, I think in some ways the best Civil War album, quite intentionally, is the Nitty Gritty Dirt Brands. Uh, you know, will the circle be unbroken? Uh, and 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 both sides now, but that entire album, that entire project. Um, Why is that so good for for Civil War? What what's what is that emblematic? What what's the message? Well, I think just the album itself and its composition. I mean, you've got in this case, it's about generational reconciliation with the backdrop of it being the North and the South, and the iconography on the album cover speaks to that as well. But but you know, here there there are these sort of long haired hippies at the time, you know, young guys playing with these you know, older um, uh, folks from the Grand Old Opry, and, and they're, they're, they're doing what I think great history and great writing does. Um, and certainly I think it's part of the project of classical music. How do you make the old stories new again? And, um, and, and, and that, that, that cross-current collaboration um, uh, that is, is so powerful. And, and so if you listen to their version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken or, or Both Sides Now or some of the more traditional songs on, on that album, it is very much about you know, the, the past meeting the present um, and connecting to the future, which is, you know, the classic Lincoln formulation for speeches, but I think speaks to all great speeches and, and much of great art or great history. Um, there, there is, you know, young versus old, there is North versus South. 
Um, it's the combination of opposites that I think is quintessentially American. And then something new begins. And in some ways, that actually describes the whole process of, of winning a peace and reconciliation and moving forward as a nation, even after trauma. You know, you get over old history by making new history. And that requires cross-pollination. And, uh, and there's nothing like a great piece played well. When people speak so much, oh, how do we make classical music? They used my, my least favorite word in the world, which is relevant. How do we make it relevant? I, I would say you just have to go and play it well and do a good job. That's step number one. If you give a great performance of Beethoven 9, believe me, you don't need to talk to the audience afterwards and ask them, what did you find relevant about this piece? Uh, well, especially <laughs> Beethoven 9. Um, I was playing that for, for my kids the other day and I was communicating kind of the reverence. I mean, Ode to Joy is perfect. It's perfect. And you're right. Um, but it's funny how some music seems to to to, to resonate I know, and how some writers, it's it's um, you know, some writers don't age and some really do. And it has to do with a certain clarity where there's a certain crispness to the best of them. And, um, you know, I mean, I do think that the best, the best of, of all music, uh, retains its, its relevance, as you say, you know, and we all have our own favorites. I mean, I'm a huge U2 fan. Um, and, and, and that's a big part of who I am. Um, but uh, that's not, you know, I didn't, other than maybe the song Yahweh, I, I didn't, you know, that wasn't a regular part of, of this uh, project when I was writing, when I was driving and thinking about it probably. But, you know, but, but I, I do, it's interesting. The, the, you want the music, when you're writing the music, getting music that's evocative of the mood and the tone and the character uh, of, of the era um, that you're trying to evoke, I think helps. It's part of that that process. Yeah, it's fascinating to see the links between uh, music and what else was going on culturally. And then just to, to say, wait a minute, all of this could be totally separated from the world around it and still just be absolutely wonderful, absolutely superb. I mean, we, we talked about on this podcast before when we did some uh, stuff about when there, there was a wave of attacks on Beethoven and things like that uh, from certain circles. And, and, and I said, you know, this, this is the, the man who tore up a dedication uh, to Napoleon of the Eroica Symphony, the Symphony Number no. 3, when he learned about uh, Napoleon being this power monger and a megalomaniac, and, and Beethoven, a great defender of democracy, tore it up and was disgusted uh, at what Napoleon was trying to do. Uh, and uh, indeed, there's nothing more sort of symbolic of the free spirit and the and the democracy in music than Beethoven, who overcame incredible struggles, including uh, obviously being completely deaf for the last 20 years of his life to produce this music. Now, tell me about what, what are your favorite Beethoven recordings? Because one of the things as someone who's not a, primarily a classical music listener um, and, and um, you know, it, like, you know, I'm amazed at how different even to a, a relative lay person, you know, like me, that the different recordings can be. Um, uh, it can be the same piece, but like the, the Leonard Bernstein uh, Ode to Joy was the one I, I sort of, I, I listened to for a long time, but then I found another that I liked even more. And then some, it just, I couldn't even tell you why, but it just feels different. What, what are your favorite Beethoven uh, performances? That's, so in, that's, that's really a tough question. That is, what, of course, one of the hardest questions in the world. I, I'm very, very partial uh, to, there's an early set of all nine. If, I, if someone said to me, I want to buy a set of the nine Beethoven symphonies, I'd say buy the first set by Herbert von Karajan, recorded in the early 60s. 
Uh, that's an absolutely extraordinary recording of all nine symphonies. Uh, and I think uh, Karian, the earlier Karian especially, uh, was he was just a great, great artist. Um, I, I, there's a very unusual recording uh, recorded in Germany during the war uh, with Furtwängler conducting Wilhelm Furtwängler, uh, and and it's very it can be unnerving to hear the recording because it was recorded in Berlin in 1944, uh, and uh, we all know what was going on then. And here they were playing Beethoven nine, doing this. It's it's a, a extremely interesting recording and a very moving because. You, the underpinning is is so shocking. You you listen to this orchestra, which had all of its Jewish players removed, many of whom had occupied the first chairs, uh, and it's a it's a it's a incredible cast of singers as well. Uh, a very interesting recording. I love Carl Boom doing uh, Beethoven. I love Carlos Kleiber doing Beethoven four. That's an extraordinary. And Beethoven five and seven as well. He recorded extraordinary recordings, and some of those are on YouTube as well. And you can see Kleiber uh, sort of conducting in a way that's pretty unique. <laughs> well, I'm going to check all those out. I, I actually I've never known how to pronounce the the first fellow you mentioned. Furtwängler, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the was no the um the, the, who did the original nine? Oh, Karian Herbert von Karian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's 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 the that's the ninth that I discovered as a version of his, the Berlin Philharmonic. That I was like, yeah. oh, I couldn't tell you why, but I love this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I you know I look I, I I'm such a music nerd and I could talk about it all day and um you know it's a pleasure to talk to a musician about it and um but you know it's funny on on the Lincoln front. Just to bring it bring it back, one of my favorite subsections of the book, um, and you know, you'll always have your favorites in your book, individual sections, uh, is called Dixie and Macbeth, and the song Dixie, um, it's very emblematic uh, of 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 Lincoln's leadership here. He's he's on the River Queen. And he does this twice in a period of three days. Um, he's actually got a, a French um, envoy uh, um, with him who wrote a very detailed. Uh, account of their days together. Um, and uh, um, and he has a military band for uh, a goodbye party on the River Queen, which was sort of the aquatic Air Force One of the time. And he shocks them, scandalizes them um, by, um, first he has them play uh, Le Marseillaise, um, which I guess had been outlawed in France. Uh, and then it clearly sparks an idea in Lincoln's head. And he says, he asked the band to play Dixie which was actually written on New York's Lower East Side, but it had become an unofficial Southern anthem. And it really scandalized everybody. But his point was, and he made it clear on a speech in the White House lawn two nights ago, that it, regardless of, of people's, I guess, partisan <laughs> beliefs and projections on it, he just always liked the tune. And he said, you know, and, and I've consulted with the attorney general, and, and he says, it's now rightly ours again, and we can all play it. And it was an incredibly magnanimous gesture but it was shocking to people because it had been a Confederate battle anthem. Uh, and then uh, on, on the River Queen home the next morning, uh, you know, you get the duality of his personality. He's reading obsessively out loud from uh, certain soliloquies in Macbeth that are about um, death and regret uh, and, 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 and the terrible responsibility of kings who send people into battle um, and how the dead can finally sleep, but the guilty cannot. It's a remarkable contrast. So there's music in here as well, is my point. 
Yeah, <laughs> there is. You know, you write in the chapter called Lincoln's Last Speech, you you write that Lincoln never lost the human touch. And I love this little paragraph, if I may read it so people can hear. This is an amazing little story. On a brief trip to the War Department, he passed a person William Crook described as a ragged, dirty man in army clothing sitting outside the White House. He'd been wounded, recently released from the hospital, and called out to the president. Lincoln walked over and sat down on the curbside next to the man, listened to his story, reviewed his papers. Convinced of the merits of his appeal, Lincoln smiled and told him to come by the White House the next day. Uh, And here's uh, Crook, um, William Crook, uh, writing about Lincoln, quote, you would never know from his manner to the plainest or poorest or meanest that there was the least difference between that man and himself. The president could meet every man square on the plane where he stood and speak to him man to man. He was the only man I ever knew the foundation of whose spirit was love. It's an incredible story, this this small little story that we hear uh, firsthand about Abraham Lincoln. Well, why do you put it's that in a, there? Well, it's not a well-known story. Um, you know, when, when you, but I think it's deeply revealing and it's, it's deeply touching. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you start the process of researching a book, um, you read, obviously, a lot. And, and the goal is to use as many primary sources as possible. And, and I try to avoid things that were written recently because I don't want that in my head. Um, but you start to see a lot of stories being recycled. And that's because they're great stories. Um, but, you know, they lose their power with repetition. And so when you find these people who were there, um, and some of them, by the way, are not always reliable narrators. I mean, Admiral Porter, who I quote a lot, um, over the course of his long life afterwards, I mean, he 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 starts to contradict himself in places, and you know, you you know, but but he was there, and his earlier work, I think, is more accurate and authoritative than his later work. But this from Crook was just so affecting to me, and it takes place in the last day of Lincoln's life. And one of the things I do in the book is I try to go incredibly close focus, not just the last six weeks of his life, but in particular on that last day. Um, and, um, you know, get into real granularity about what he did and, and, and what he said. Um, and, and, and that moment to me was, was just so transcendent, you know, Lincoln with his long legs sitting on the curb next to a homeless army veteran, in effect, and, and, and talking to man to man and crooks reflecting um, the essence of his soul was love. And, you know, we, we haven't had a lot of example of love in our politics today. I mean, I think our current president is an eminently decent man. Um, but uh, we haven't seen a lot of examples um, because of the remorseless logic of polarization and distrust and hate. Um, of, of people trying to practice the politics, the golden rule and treating others as they'd like to be treated. I mean, you know, we, we went through something where, you know, those of us who, who sort of view America through a lens of civic religion, um, you know, the idea that someone in the office, uh, you know, would see ethics as weakness is hard on, on the heart and soul. Um, and, and, and so Lincoln, his example and his presence, I mean, remember he's bookended by, you know, he's considered America's greatest president and he's such a, a, a unique, uh, you know, figure 
I mean, he's, he's, he's not, there's nothing cookie cutter about Abraham Lincoln in any way, shape or form. And, but he's bookended by two, our two worst presidents, arguably, almost an arguably, um, uh, you know, James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson, and still the Republic survives, but it survives in part because of the power of his example. And, 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 and we shouldn't lose sight of, of, of the power of love, of, of meeting hate with love. It's, 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 sound, it's so deceptively simple sounding. It's the tallest order there is, but it can be transformative in ways that echo on. And I think Abraham Lincoln's example show, proves that. And here we are looping back uh, as naturally as could be right to my introduction, which was, what did he know that we don't know? Uh, and who, who today can be an Abraham Lincoln? We, we need one badly. You're involved in modern American politics. Uh, I'm a watcher uh, in an amateur sense and a reader in an amateur sense of modern American politics. Uh, I don't think an Abraham Lincoln is going to sort of parachute out of the sky. So, sir, what do we do? We're not going to find another Lincoln. Um, but remember, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, didn't seem like a savior to his contemporaries either. He, he was not out of central casting. He seemed spectacularly ill-suited for the responsibilities of the office at that particular time. I think what we can look for is people of similar spirit. And, and, and it does require uh, character above all. But what does that mean? A belief that decency can be the most effective form of politics. A willingness and a determination to combine strength with mercy. Um, people who are cut out from this reconciling form of leadership that Lincoln basically invents, that other leaders who have amplified it over time include, as I say, Martin Luther King, but Nelson Mandela, who his biographer calls Africa's Lincoln, because they don't. Most political leaders do try to turn groups against each other. The far more difficult path is, is focusing on common humanity, but that's the truly revolutionary path because it's, it's, it's a revolution of love. And um, I think we can find those people of similar spirit. But so much in our politics tries to dissuade people like that from getting involved. It tries to drum out those best qualities out of people for all sorts of short-term calculations. And, and the remorseless logic of polarization that, that tends to inspire desire for hate and revenge. But reconciliation is the opposite of that. Um, so it's not that we're going to find another Lincoln. But it is important to remember history in the essence of applied history, which is what I've, I've tried to do and, and what I'm interested in, is applying the lessons of history, not because these are some distant, perfect people, but we can be guided by the light of history. And indeed, we need to be, particularly when times seem dark, because it can give us courage and hope and comfort. And we can be inspired by the best of the past, not the worst. And, and the question of how you win a peace is one that we don't spend enough time on. We study war all the time. We don't study peace enough. And that's in large part why I wrote this book. What are the best practices? What's required in addition to um, leadership? Uh, what are the structures that can be put in place? Uh, not in a utopian sense, um, but that can harness human nature in a constructive direction again and bring out the better angels of our nature. Leadership's essential, um, but strength combined with magnanimity, strength of mercy. Um, that's wisdom. And that's what we've been missing. But that's what's essential. John Avalon with the book, 
Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. I'm holding it right here. A beautiful cover with Lincoln coming out of the sunlight. Uh, I, I think it's it's a, a beautiful uh, cover indeed. Um, looking for wisdom. Let's all keep searching. In the meantime, John Avlon, I thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and write a review if you would. That really helps. The original music for this show is by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. For more information, visit the website of the show, talkingbeats.com. Thank you for listening. This is Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk.